Okay, so we, uh, we're going to kind of do a whistle-stop tour through a number of chapters. If you want to have a Bible beside you and flick through it, there's some Bibles at the side, or if you want to do that on your phones, that's great. It might be helpful just to keep a, an idea, of, even visually, of, of where we're going. But my intention this evening is to um, remind all of us. Now, you might not think this from the passage that we're reading, but my, my intention is to remind us, and same as in the words of that song, it really to remind us how great Jesus is, how great it is to be a Christian, and how important it is to stick close to Jesus. So maybe this evening you're struggling to stick close to Jesus. Maybe you feel like giving up. Maybe you're a bit bored and uh, fed up with it all. And what I want to get across tonight from this passage is the importance of Him and sticking close to Him because it's dangerous ground being outside of Him. It's a dark place outside of Jesus. And just want to really do that. I know it's, it's an Old Testament and, and Jesus is not uh, directly in this passage, but uh, I hope we'll, we'll see um, what God is teaching us from this passage. I would really encourage you to go home uh, at some time, not right now, uh, in a little while, to go home and maybe read through that whole section from chapter maybe 12 or 13 right up to chapter 18. And uh, if you've got a, your Bible online and it's got lots of different versions, maybe do it in the message or do it in the New Living Translation or one that's maybe slightly more paraphrased because it's, you know, it's a story and it's, it's really great to read like a story. Um, and it, uh, it's, 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 it's just an amazingly powerful uh, story. So if you do have time, uh, do go back to the story. But just as a backdrop, just, just to set the scene, I want to read a ver- couple of verses that I'm not sure if Corey read them last week, but it was part of the, the chapter that Corey was looking at. It's chapter 12, it's when Nathan rebukes David for what he'd done with Bathsheba. And we, you know, we saw that, the rape and the murder and everything that went on with that. Uh, um, so it's 2 Samuel chapter 12, and can you look back at uh, verses 10, um, where Nathan brings the message from God uh, to David because of what he's done. He said, now therefore, verse 10 of chapter 12, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you will die. Nathan went to his house. And that's really the context of the rest of the whole story of David and Absalom. And it's, it's not pleasant reading. It's not easy to read. It's difficult. But we see what David went through is really significant. His laziness, his lust, his rape, his murder, the cover-up, the exposure by God, the forgiveness, the redemption... The consequences are all spoken of in these chapters. And it's really the unfolding of what David, or what God says through Nathan to David. He's forgiven, 
but there's consequences for what he's done in this life. And so we go into chapter 13 very quickly. Chapter 13, Amnon, David's eldest son, the heir to the throne, his mother is Ahinoam. And he has this uh, unnatural desire for his half-sister, Tamar, and he must have her. And so he so arranges things that he can take her, and he rapes her. And Tamar is his half-sister, whose mother uh, is Maaka, one of David's other wives. It's a brutal, ugly, lust-fueled, hate-filled chapter. God isn't mentioned in it. But at the second half of the chapter, we, we see the result of what Amnon had done in Absalom's response. Now, Absalom's his half-brother. Tamar was Absalom's full sister, and he hated Amnon for what he did. And there's two years of it all bubbling up inside him until he gets the opportunity to lure Amnon into an ambush, gets him drunk, murders him, and then flees on the run, just like his dad before him, except David was on the run from Saul. Now, Absalom was on the run from his own dad, uh, David. And then chapter 14 kind of unfolds it more. So you've got, it's like Game of Thrones, chapter 14. Who's in charge? Who's on the throne? Because who's running the show? Is it Joab, who's the commander of David's army? Is it Absalom in exile, pulling the strings? Or is it this woman from Tekoa, who Joab uh, asks to go and speak to the king to try and get the king to bring Absalom back into the country? It's quite interesting. Verse chapter 14 and verse 13, it's this woman, uh, it's wise woman from Tekoa who says, when he, she told her story, the woman said, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king, king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. And this woman told a story to try, it was kind of like a parable, a, a story, a bit like Nathan's story to David earlier on, uh, and said, and then said, really, you're the guy. Why don't you bring your son Absalom home from exile if he's forgiven? And, and it, it starts this, this movement to have Absalom come back into the uh, nation. And the, so Absalom returns, and there's the return of the great pretender. And yet David doesn't speak to him. He's kind of outside the city. And then verse, if you go to chapter 14, just follow with me because it makes it slightly easier. 25 and 26. Absalom comes back to Israel, and we're told all Israel was there. Uh, in all Israel, there was no one as much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, I'm feeling very envious here, uh, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. Uh, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, and it weighed the, the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Mine's about an ounce and a half. Okay. And there was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. Ah, he called, he called his daughter after his beautiful sister. And he's, it's interesting, isn't it? He's just the kind of man that Israel as a nation would have wanted, wasn't he? He's, he's the Saul-like man. He's this great, beautiful, golden, long-haired guy with a six-pack and a, a, a tremendous physical appearance, and the people loved him, and he, he, had an, he had his eye on the kingdom. 
So he, stood, he used to sit at the gate of the city and he would get the, he became a, a one who the common people loved because he would speak to them and he would deal with them and he would, he would judge the issues that they had just like the king should do. And he, because he had his eye on the kingdom at the cost of his father's life. That chapter, God's hardly mentioned. And then chapters 15 to 17 take that story further on where Abraham, the poster boy who's working the crowd, steals their hearts and the rebellion against David happens. And it's an unfolding scene of loyalties and treachery and friends and enemies. There's a coup d'etat and uh, Absalom takes over and he's in the palace. And what does his, what does his men, rec- what does his advisors recommend? Go sleep on the roof with David's concubines. Just show who's the boss. Show who's in charge. Show who's the one uh, that is now the king. And he does that, if you remember chapter 12. David then is on the run. King David, he's on the run. Like a fugitive, vilified, humiliated, mocked by people who see him. And yet, and yet in it all, in all the poverty of David, in all the poverty of his leadership, in all the mistakes he'd made, in all the folly of what he was doing, chapter 15, verse 31, he cries out to God. His closest advisor, Ahithophel, has turned coat and become a, an advisor to Absalom, and he's a smart cookie. He's really sharp. He's a great advisor. He always gives brilliant advice. And David says, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. And in that cry, God answers and ordains victory for him. David catches a break as he cries out to the living God. And chapter 18, which is the one we eventually read, the last part of it, David fights back. He sends out an army, and as I said, that as he sent out this army, because he knew he was probably going to defeat Absalom and his men, he says, and this, this would, was a crazy thing to say in many ways, not as a father, but as a commander, as a king, he said, just look after Absalom. He's my boy. Take care of him. Keep him alive. And of course, what happens is that Absalom is riding on a donkey, and he he happens to come across David's men and he's fleeing from them and he flees into a forest and a forest not a good place to go on a horse or a donkey uh, and he gets his head caught in the bough of a tree probably his hair remember all that heavy hair catches him and he's left hanging from the tree but he's still alive and the soldiers who go there say well, we're not going to touch him he's the Lord's anointed he's, he's the son of the king But Joab says, come on, get your act together. And stabs him three times. And he's thrown into a field, pile of stones put upon him, which is really uh, the the death of of someone in disgrace. No legacy, just that. A cursed death and a sad memorial. No sons left. Presumably his sons died. We're told he had two sons and Tamar, his daughter. But they must have died. And then David mourns. It's tragic grief, isn't it? Isn't it tremendously powerful, that last verses that we read? His estranged son. His estranged son who hated him. 
And David in it all is really kind of right through this part. He's kind of weak and passive. Joab takes more of a lead than him. Others show more grace than he showed. And there's real guilt, I think, in his cry. Real guilt about the reality of the terrible consequences of his own actions. Allowing his own love for himself to smother, to blind and deceive him. He knows the covenant God has forgiven him. And yet he senses, what have I done? What have I done with all the blessings and grace that were showered upon me? He never, can I say again, I don't think he ever gets higher than the way he deals with Mephibosheth in the chapter before the Bathsheba one. He never shows more covenant love, more grace. And yet, he returned to the Lord again and again because he was a man after God's own heart. And who am I today to stand in judgment on David with all the much greater light and knowledge of God and the gospel and Jesus Christ that I have? But yet, he's a warning to us, even though he's the great king and the son, uh, the man after God's own heart. So, what do you, what, quickly, what, what do we think God is teaching us through a passage like this? I think there's a few things. The first thing I think is that God's grace is not for good people, okay? Grace is not for people who think that they're good people. David's not a hero in this story. He's fallen, and he stumbles, and he fails, and he's not the king that, that humanity needs. Obviously, we've seen that points forward to a greater king, but the gospel and grace is not for good people because each of us, every one of us here share David's DNA. Every one of us. We all share the potential to sin the way David sinned. If you have time, look up the discredited Stanford prison experiments of the 1970s uh, where, I'll not explain it, but they're very interesting (laughs) because ordinary people are put into a experimental situation where they're either prisoners or prison guards, and they're all very balanced, ordinary people, none with psychological or or, uh, violence issues. And when they are in a certain situation and asked to act in a certain way, all kinds of darkness and blackness comes out in their experiences. This week, a 21-year-old Russian soldier was found guilty of war crimes, shooting an innocent man in the head. Was he a beast, this 21-year-old Russian soldier? I don't think so. He was a 21-year-old man. That's younger. That's the same age as a lot of the guys here. Probably had a fairly ordinary upbringing. And yet in the circumstances he finds himself in, this darkness that can be in any one of us comes out and he acts in that kind of way. The reality is that darkness is in each of us. And we give thanks, as I did today at the beginning of the service, for God's restraining grace that allows us to live relatively normal lives because of His goodness. And yet, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we brush over that like it's, oh yeah, I know, we've all sinned. We all have this potentiality within us. And David's visible horrors expose the secret lusts, self-pity, hatred, and pride that we so often harbor in our lives 
which never reveal themselves in open contempt because of God's mercy, but God sees. And the greatest horror is to think that we are good enough for God in ourselves and that we don't really need Jesus. So God's grace is not for good people. But God's forgiveness, secondly, doesn't, doesn't rule out repercussions, at least in this life. And I think that's a very solemn truth for us, that um, we may be forgiven, and we will be forgiven always as Christians when we come back to God. But the consequences of what we do may still have an impact, not only on our lives, but the lives of people around us. Because other people might not forgive us, for, for example. And our example might bring a destructive reality into other people's lives. Because sin is often learned behavior. When people see the way we act, they may follow our example. If you look at Amnon and Absalom, the kind of things that happened, lust and rape and contrived murder, were all things they had seen in their father. They'd seen it in his life. Now, they would have known he was forgiven as well, but nonetheless, they saw what he did. And David himself lost three of his sons three of his sons as a direct result of what he did, even though he was forgiven. His child of Bathsheba, Amnon, his firstborn, and Absalom, his beloved at one level, although there was a strange relationship, love-hate relationship between them, maybe love and not sure what to do with him on David's part and anger and hatred on, on Absalom's part but he lost three of his sons. He had a divided kingdom. So much disaster in these really horrible chapters to read in many ways. And and the New Testament reminds us, you know, in Ephesians 4.30, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we can quench the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, live our lives in such a way that we receive forgiveness, but we don't recognize this, the cost of that forgiveness, and we quickly stumble back into sinful living. But our forgiveness isn't cheap, and God isn't mocked, and we can destroy others by our attitudes and by our uh, responses and by the way that we live our lives. We can never say, you know, I'm just going to sin a little bit more so that grace can abound. Oh, that's a popular one in the New Testament, and it's spoken about. We can't do that. That's not what we're able to do, and that is misunderstanding of ourselves and of God's love for us. Forgiveness can never be a license to live selfishly. Have you ever heard of a vomitory? Sorry to be so crude, but a vomitory, I think it was called a vomitory, was a channel that was down the side of uh, 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 a banqueting hall in Roman times. Uh, so that those who were engaged in the banquet could eat themselves sick, vomit down the vomitory so their stomachs were empty so they could fill them again with more food. Gluttony, greed, really, vomitory. But that's what we're doing if we despise grace. Grace is not forgiveness that empties ourselves of our sin in order that we can fill our lives up with sin again. That is not what we're called to do. 
Grace is to transform us and to change us in our example, in our home, in our life, in our private thoughts, in our understanding, either as building us up and building others up and building our relationship with God up, or it's destroying it. We're called to put sin to death because it destroys. It's a destructive reality. And you know, we struggle with that in our lives because we don't feel that that's the case. But what path am I on and what path are you on this evening? Do we understand ourselves and what God is telling us through the story of David when we choose to grumble and choose to uh, drink too much or to watch porn or to gossip or to accuse God or to be prayerless? Do we just say, I can forgive it. I'm a Christian. It's okay. I'll just carry on doing this because I'm quite enjoying it and I'm forgiving. Is that true love? Is that how we should live our lives? In many ways, the Word always exposes us to drive us back to the safety, the warmth, and the light, and the hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because I think it's possible to know peace with God through Christ and through His forgiveness, but not the peace of God felt in our lives. How many of you feel the peace of God in your life? We know the peace with God because of what Jesus has done. We know it theologically. You know, I'm right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I know peace with God. I'm right with God through Christ, covered in the blood of the Lamb. But do you know the peace of God on a day-to-day basis? Because the choices we make will create the barrier to a felt peace. We might have ontological peace. We might have peace with God at that level because of what Christ has done. But we can sometimes not feel that peace because we're making the wrong choices. We're saved, but we're drifting. And we're drifting into the wrong places and doing the wrong things and making the wrong choices so that we don't feel His peace and we don't sense His peace in our lives. And, that's a, and there are consequences for the choices. We, if, we're, if we're selfish or, or self-centered or proud and we show that and we're divisive, and many things that Corey was talking about this morning within the church family, if these things are insignificant to us, uh, so that we, we, we sin consciously and deliberately. If we are shutting out God, we will know this peace, felt this peace in our lives. So we need someone better than ourselves, always. And we need someone better than David. And that's the great thing about David as he points us to the one who is better than himself, the living God. Have mercy on it. You know, you go back to that uh, great psalm connected with his response to his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, your hesed, your covenant mercy. And that is so significant for us because we find in Christ the greater and better King. And we're called to follow Him and His light and His love and His goodness because Christ is the better King. Because He is, unlike David, truly good. And, you know, that matters. It matters in your relationship with Christ that you understand and that I understand that He is truly good. He's not like David. It matters because we accuse Christ sometimes of not caring, of being selfish, 
of setting an example that we don't understand, of failing on His promises, and we're angry with Him, we say He can't be trusted, and that He's a failed king. He's saying he, we are better than Him. But Christ can never just be a better version, even at a human level, of ourselves. We saw it tonight. He's truly human, and He's truly God. And as God, He lives this totally sinless life in thought, word, and deed, filled with perfect love and utterly good motives. So, we, when we trust in Jesus, we're trusting in one who has no secret sin, no duplicity, no lies, no greed, no lust, no envy, no bitterness. And He lived that life as God in order to be our substitute, as we know. But you simply can't look elsewhere for the kind of life and love that we need and Savior that we need. And I think it changes the way we pray because we're praying to someone who's utterly and completely good and is our Savior and Lord who died, who paid the, he paid the price for our sinful choices even though he had none. He made no sinful choices but he paid the price for ours. And it's interesting, when, when Jesus is born, uh, Simeon, the prophet, says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And the, the sword that pierced her soul was seeing her son on the cross, himself bearing the sword. The sword never left David's house. And we have that in, in 2 Samuel 12, the sword will not leave your house. And it didn't leave right up to the crucifixion because the greater king was dying for sin, but not for his own sin. And not God's wrath not being poured out because of his life, but because of our lives. And he was dying in our place. And he takes the sword of God's judgment voluntarily, willingly, lovingly, so that you and I don't take it. And so on the cross, you've got parallel heart cries, don't you, of two very different kings. Billy kind of alluded to it in his prayer. David, these sad words that we read at the end of chapter 18, kind of in guilt with love lost and a degree of self-pity, unable to bring his son back or even to take his place, even though he wanted to. And that Jesus on the cross, Psalm 22, in innocence cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With overwhelming love and self-denial, bearing our forsakenness, taking our place, doing what David couldn't do, die in place of his son, take his place. He becomes the one who dies in our place. He takes our place to restore us to himself in resurrection. So my prayer tonight for myself, much more uh, so, and for you also, is that we grasp how good Jesus is and what it means to follow him. He doesn't want us to follow him because it's harsh or oppressive or rigorous or legalistic. He wants us to follow him because he is life and love and goodness. And he wants us to learn that sin is something we should hate 
you know and I know we're attracted to it so much, and yet its, it's roots are selfishness and destructive. And you, to, you today and me today and tomorrow, we will all have choices to make. We will all be making choices. And you and I need the wisdom of God today and tomorrow to make the right choices so that we recognize that he wants to keep us from destruction. And he wants to keep us from a life that has miserable consequences. And he wants us to live live a life of blessing and of grace and an example to our children, our neighbors, our colleagues for good. Not for ill, but for good. And he wants life. He wants us to be built up, not knocked down. And he wants that for us all as a church as well. We we speak to one another. We think about one another. We we talk about one another. We act towards one another positively, graciously, in a Christ-like way so that there are positive consequences and fruit-bearing for our lives and that we're not those, and this is a verse that I don't really understand, we're not really like those who escape to heaven through the flames with our works all being burnt up. We don't want that. And Christ alone, as we stick close to him, stick near to him, and turn towards him, gives us that. It's good. It's tough. It's not easy. But it's good. And that's what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us. It's difficult chapters that we've been reading. Difficult to read. Painful for parents, for children, for people like us to read this story and to see so often it reflected in lives around us. Abusive lives, hurtful lives, death, misery, separation, division. Yet so often we treat sin lightly and we smooch with it and we, we caress it and we keep it close and we shrug our shoulders and say, well, we're forgiven anyway. I can just pray on a Friday evening. Lord, help us to see your love and see the cost of your love and see the healing power of your love and the light of your love and that you're there for us. You love us that you want us to turn towards you. You're like the prodigal father, as we saw this morning. And uh, help us to see you in that way. Help us to deny our sinful selves and our longing to be on the throne. Help us, we pray, and guide us and point us daily, hourly, minutely, towards Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. We're going to finish with the version of the Psalm 91, which is a great psalm of talking about the protection and love of God and the dwelling place that we should have uh, is in His presence. And that's what we're looking at in our lives, to be in His presence as believers. So, uh, Psalm 91. We'll stand together and sing it.
to go down to the hall to sing some of that one it was so low but then we come up we should have gone into the galleries to sing the, the maybe there's a spiritual thing there about being low and then going high it's amazing well done peace be to my brothers and sisters and love with faith from god the father and the lord jesus christ grace be with all who love our lord jesus christ with love incorruptible and all god's people say amen Please uh, be seated. Just a couple of things. Can I remind you, the engine room on Wednesday evening will be on Zoom uh, because of the assembly uh, and we'll not be able to meet here. It's normally, the assembly week is normally the week of a city group, which is, works out well, but every five or six or whatever years, it's, it's a later week, which messes up our diary. Anyway, but that's fine. So it's on Zoom. So if you can join, the details will be on the Wednesday email. And tonight, can I just ask you to uh, uh, stay behind, those who can, those who feel strong enough to stay behind and do some heavy lifting. So we're going to have to bring all the tables from behind the, the screen in the moderator's gallery down here and set them up for the assembly tomorrow, uh, starting tomorrow evening. And also, we're going to set out all the tables that we have, the long tables with the legs that flick out. Uh, they're going to go downstairs in the hall for the cafe, which 
is on during the week, the Assembly Cafe. So if any of you want to come for lunch, you're very welcome. The Assembly is also a public meeting, so uh, if you're interested at all just to wander in, you can sit in the galleries and watch what's happening uh, at the Assembly. And then, do remember Sparkle Sisters, uh, which is happening here on Thursday evening, so we hope that the Assembly will finish on time, at uh, lunchtime on Thursday, so that we can set up Sparkle Sisters for the evening which is great. So, uh, this evening, maybe if you're sitting in the middle, uh, you could, uh, like the man that Jesus healed who rolled up his mat and took it home on the Sabbath, you can pick up your chair and put it in the side and so that the whole middle bit is cleared and we can put the tables there uh, and then put the, some of the chairs back. So, But thank you for your help, if you're able to help, and do go in peace, guard your heart, love God, and love other people well. <laughs>